This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Bat Beasts, Kellis Cats and Wolfmen, Lesser Known Cryptids of Britain and Ireland, Part 2. So we are continuing on with our spooky season special, as it is October and thus the spooky season. Uh, Now, last week, we told you a little bit about some of the lesser known cryptids that are found in uh, the UK and in Ireland. And this week, we're going to tell you a little bit more about that. I'm very excited. (laughs) So am I. Some of the, you know, okay, I could admit this now, but um, I very nearly put down the wild haggis just because I found the whole thing so funny. Maybe I'll mention it at the end. That's not a real cryptic. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, please. Yeah, we've got to talk about the wild haggis. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's that's that old that old chestnut. (laughs) That well-known wee hairy beastie. Um, Right. (laughs) Okay, so we already summarised what we mean by cryptid in the previous episode. So. Check that episode out if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to summarise, a cryptid is an impossible animal which people nevertheless encounter. Yes. Um, and there have, as we've explained in the previous episode, been cases where cryptids um, have actually been sort of revealed to be real. Um, a fun example of a cryptid um, is the platypus. Uh, where <laughs> my favourite story is the platypus, which is when like the first sort of I think the first person brought a stuffed platypus. Like they killed the platypus, they yeah. taxidermied it, um, which was a very common way of sort of introducing strange animals back into the UK. And they brought it back, and someone said, "This is very clearly a fake. This has clearly been sewn together out of various body." parts of different animals which was a thing that did happen um because there's no way this thing is real i'd like to kind of point out that you know previously someone had made a mermaid and there were people convinced by it but no one was convinced by the platypus it it was great and it was the fact that um it's (laughs) the fact that it lays eggs and things and then when they finally were like oh this might be a real thing we need to like catch it laying eggs and and observe it etc obviously no camera film or anything like that back no. then and it was just just the case of somebody thought they'd found the missing link between mammals and, and birds or mammals and amphibians yeah they didn't know what to make of it so that's a great example <laughs> they really um, didn't <laughs> okay it, it may uh, a cryptid may also be a non-native animal seen where it shouldn't be for example the black panthers in wales mm-hmm. yes um we you know there's all sorts of stories kind of linked to that and we have kind of touched on those in the past so we're not going to really kind of go into that too much but you can hear a little bit more about some of those things um in the previous episode if you haven't um listened to it yet yeah it may also be an animal that hasn't been taxonomically identified so for example the snow leopard wasn't identified till fairly recently same with the okapi uh the clouded leopard and various others you know my uh, my partner and I we were having a discussion the other day and we were talking about sort of like cryptids and things like that and we came up with this idea imagine all imagine there were no bears on earth okay imagine we we didn't have bears the only bear we had was the polar bear right yeah Are you with me so far and the polar bear in in its sort of natural environment um and we kind of said how crazy would it be if 
you know, <laughs> basically no one no one has ever heard or really knows the concept of a bear. And then sort of a few people start to kind of venture up there or there are these tales of these huge white sort of creatures that there are like bigger than wolves or, or that stand up like men and are kind of werewolves and things like that. And how easy it would be to dismiss that and then how easy it would be to kind of just say, no, no, but these things are real. And basically, with that idea, applying that to... That's potentially what cryptids are actually like. We could very yeah. much just have things that are just very rare, of which we don't really have a, a great concept of. And we have had in the past, um, which is kind of why cryptids is such a fascinating discussion, because there's always the possibility that there is actually some truth to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it may also be an animal thought to be extinct, but actually alive. So. Yeah. Uh, for example, the British lynx may well not actually be as extinct as it's supposed to have been. I've <laughs> just got really, really good at hiding. Um, or it may be an inexplicable creature of folklore. And those, you know, there's usually a grain of truth in folklore tales as well, whether mm -hmm. or not the actual creature exists. That Those stories exist for a reason. So, yeah. you know, I, I would say dismiss them at your peril. Anyway. Let's start with a good one, which is the Tipperary Wolfman. <laughs> you know you're you're in for a treat when it starts with Wolfman. <laughs> um, so yet, um, <laughs> for those who don't know, there is a there is a pretty long history of werewolves um, in Tipperary, um, which we're going to get into. Um, Jules will be able to tell you about it in much more detail. <laughs> Um, however, there are some big differences in Irish werewolves compared to other European werewolves. Right. Well, I mean, Tipperary is actually partially where my family's from, by way of Cork. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, some of these stories are stories I heard when I was visiting family. Um, but <laughs> sighting, no, the, the, the whole sightings things, the recent stuff, fairly recent stuff, yeah. is, is nothing to do with me. I have not seen a werewolf in Tipperary. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you are the I'm joking <laughs> that would explain a lot it would explain the man part of it in fairness <laughs> okay sightings of the wolfman tend to follow a similar pattern they are nighttime encounters and at first witnesses see a man who seems odd in some way or out of place on looking again the man has been replaced with a huge wolf-like creature with glowing red eyes all right. Well, that's always a good start. Glowing eyes are definitely not something that's going to frighten anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a few sort of relatively well-documented sightings. So in 1913, an anonymous witness saw a huge furred creature with the head of a wolf. So maybe it was a wolf. Uh, while walking down a lane at night near Ballymacward train station. Okay. <laughs> I love this next one. 1940s, two 15-year-old boys heard growling from behind a wall. And on peering over it, saw a man with a bear-like head. Unbelievably, they asked him if he was all right, and the wolf man snarled quite rudely, don't talk to me. <laughs> I love that. I love the concept. It's just, they're like, you're right, mate. <laughs> and he's like, don't talk to me. <laughs> all right, jeez. Get on with your transformation alone, <laughs> In 1999, a young lad was driving home with his aunt, uncle and cousin. The road was very dark, but there was a light on outside a cottage which allowed him to see an elderly looking man bent over in the middle of the road. This was winter. Um, their car passed and when he looked back, there was a huge wolfish creature with red eyes where the man had been standing. Ooh, okay. 
And in 2009, UK Bigfoot researcher Deborah Hatswell, we actually have our own Bigfoot researcher. I didn't know that. <laughs> received a call that a man had turned into a haunted dog in the road between Newport and Rear Cross in South Tipperary. A haunted, a haunted dog. dog? Usually what they mean is like a, ba- a big black dog. Big, big, big black <laughs> hound. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I don't have an awful lot of commentary on what people have seen, um, except that there is a lot of... It's noticeable there's a lot of crossover. You, last week we talked about Woodwows and British Bigfoot. Yeah. Um, with the Irish version is Grugach, um, which seems to be very similar to Woodwows. And there does seem to be a lot of confusion mm. between whether it was a werewolf or whether it was Grugach. Um, anyway, going back to the whole history of the werewolf in the area, um, mm. there's all sorts of legends. In fact, they're, and they're, they're quite intense. So um, le- uh, it's worth remembering that Ireland was once absolutely overrun with wolves to the point where they actually bred a special dog that was good at hunting them. So that's where we get the Irish yeah. wolfhound from. I'm really potting this history, but yeah, <laughs> there we go. And the wolf has a long-standing place in Irish culture. There's a lot of respect for it. I mean, there's an Irish term for wolf, which literally means son of the earth or wild son, and they kind of greet the mm. wolf as brother. Um, but the werewolves of Ossory, which was a, a medieval kingdom in Ireland and took up part of Kilkenny uh, on the edge of Tipperary and various other places... Um, there was a king, there was a legendary king called Lake Macfailand, whose line was cursed to become wolfmen. Um, it may have derived from the fact that they adopted sort of lupine-esque hairstyles or they wore wolf skins when they went wolfing, which was they carried out raids on neighbouring kingdoms, as you did. Yeah. As was the custom at the time. <laughs> Stealing other people's cattle. <laughs> it's like, well, it's Friday, you know what that means. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also some interesting sort of rewriting of legend. And we have lost some of the original legend um, because when the Normans invaded... They were kind of like, we don't like the Irish having their own legends, so they destroyed quite a bit. Mm. But they also took some stuff and rewrote it. Um, there's a medieval Irish work, Coir Anlan, which is the fitness of names, and was probably based on earlier traditions, which gives the account of Lake Macfairland. Um, and he he is still revered as the ancestor of a tribe of werewolves. Being a werewolf wasn't necessarily a bad thing in Irish mythology. It became a mm. bad thing under the Normans for yeah. some reason. Um, when St. Patrick was doing his ministry around Ireland, converting everyone to Christianity, because everyone just converted, just like that. Yep. Uh, as they do. There was everyone except one tribe, and one tribe, when he approached them to talk about Christianity, um, they greeted what he said with the howling of wolves, so they mocked him by howling at him. Um, so this upset Patrick, he went away and he prayed... <laughs> Sorry, I just love that. This upset Patrick. <laughs> Patrick was a spiteful git. This is why I do not like St. Patrick. It makes me a terrible ear enough, but you know, I don't like St. Patrick for these reasons. He killed a lot of pagans and he went away and prayed to God and God sort of put it and, and through the, the way it's phrased in the Norman text is and through the mercy of God's grace the men of this tribe were cursed to become wolves once every seven years and run on four feet. And, you know, there'd be this huge pack of wolves running around once every seven years, except they were worse than wolves because they had the wits of men. Part yeah. of me is like, how, what a weird curse. 
Yeah, like, I feel like actually you're kind of giving them a, a bit of an advantage. Like, they've got the wits of men, but they can, like, tear you apart. What? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I suppose the whole point was that, uh, you know, while you're a wolf, technically you're considered not to have a soul. Ergo, if you died as a wolf, then you wouldn't go to heaven. But then right. since they'd rejected Christianity anyway, I doubt they were really that fussed about that. Yeah, I don't think they really cared. <laughs> there's a There's a whole... Thing there. There's various accounts, and then there is Gerald of Wales. <laughs> um, That's such a, a typical wolf wolf man name, <laughs> Gerald. Gerald of Wales. <laughs> um, he was appointed as Archdeacon of Brecknock back in 1175. He also worked as a historian, a writer, and accompanied the future king, John of England. Yes, that mm-hmm. John. Bad King John. Bad on an expedition to Ireland in 1185. Mm-hmm. Um, and it presents the story of an unnamed priest who is travelling from Ulster to Meath and he encounters a wolf in the woods to his amazement the wolf tells him not to be afraid and talks about God the priest begs the wolf not to harm him and urges him to explain the wolf replies there are two of us, a man and a woman, natives of Ossery who through the curse of one Natalis, saint and abbot are compelled every seven years to put off of the human form and depart from the dwellings of men Quitting entirely the human form, we assume that of wolves. At the end of the seven years, if they chance to survive, two others shall be substituted in their places. So it, it's clear that Gerald's account is based on an Irish account, and the Norman account is based on Gerald's account. Right. Um, it's been passed on. It's clearly been given a more Christian flavour, and a more Christian flavour the further on it goes to fit in with whoever mm-hmm. it was for at the time. But I do find it interesting that... It's quite likely that in this particular area in Ossery, um, whoever the king really was, Legnach Fairlad, it, it was probably a pseudonym for something, or it was just a legendary figure like Culhullen. Mm-hmm. Um, they may well have been in a practice very much like, you know, groups of the um, the Norse were, mm-hmm. of taking certain substances and putting on wolf skins and having yeah. sort of like a spirit quest. Um, whereby you you release your inner wolf, your inner your your yeah. inner savage, if you like, um, before going off and doing raids. So you know, not really that different to the Finn Gael in that respect. So I do yeah. think it's interesting, and I think there is a lot to be said for if you live in that area of Tipperary, you can imbibe these stories just through through being in the area, and um, it could turn things that you perhaps see by night into something that's a bit uncanny Mm -hmm. Um, they are a bit different to your typical werewolves though because they're thinking they're not deliberately going out and savaging people they're not trying to pass the curse on um and the other thing i will mention is the fowley the fowley are are the real true irish werewolf the irish werewolf the fowley um what they're concerned with is nothing except protecting the home and children right they're special guardians of children um, it's not that they're gentle, they are absolutely savage, but, you know, they will protect children. So if you have a fowley as part of your, your family, mm-hmm. then that person is, is absolutely dedicated to project, protecting the next generation. Nothing will get past them. I just find that really interesting because, again, they're not going out and savaging cattle. They're not going out and passing on the werewolf curse. They're kind of like, yeah, it kind of sucks that every so often I have to be a wolf, but you know what I do with that? I look after the kids. Yeah. And that I think that is the really interesting aspect of it. Um, and again, 
as you've mentioned, the whole kind of the, the concept of, of the introduction with Christianity and how that kind of changed the narrative um, with sort of Normans, etc. Um, this idea of this of the wild, but also this sense of loyalty and protection uh, within one's own kind of circle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All things which were very much prized amongst sort of early Irish culture right up until, you know, things started to break. I say breakdown. Breakdown's not really the right word for it. But when the Normans came, when the English sort of were invited in by one yeah. enterprising chieftain who wanted to use the English weaponry, mm-hmm. he was actually a Welshman, interestingly enough, working Thanks. for the English. <laughs> Gerald! <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Gerald was just a chronicler. I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, long, I know, I know, I know. But yeah. Um, yeah, he married Aoife, Aoife Nemertach, who uh, was a famous Irish princess. And mm. yeah, basically, things changed. The, the whole system of, of the clans started to fracture a little bit. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the structure of the clans is incredibly complicated to, to, to get into. That's that's something for another podcast, if we that, ever that touch it That would be a whole other... <laughs> yeah, it's very, very complicated. Um, but, yeah, certain stories get passed on, and um, the idea of, of the wolf men is, is one of them. The other thing mm. to mention, I suppose, is the Fenia and the Luchthon. Um, there, is, there is a story that the Fenia, basically the the outlaws if you like it's a mm-hmm. rough rough translation were cursed by a saint again cursed by a saint for their lawless ways saints do a lot of cursing in Ireland. they really do like for, for people who are not supposed to you know yeah. like be out doing witchcraft they seem to be doing yes. a lot of witchcraft <laughs> <laughs> yes but for their lawless ways and wolfish behavior they were cursed to become luchthon which is wolfmen mm. Um, so go on four legs and take the form of a wolf, which again I don't think is that much of a punishment, unless someone's out hunting wolves, and then it kind of sucks. Yeah, uh, again, it, it is also this kind of this weird thing in that if we kind of apply, what could it actually mean? Let's say there was sort of a, a group of people, and and they really did say, right, well we're going to kind of, uh, you know, you're cursed. And if we're saying, okay, they're not actually turning into wolves. But what they are instead is is kind of acting in sort of a wild way or going out and sort of doing X, Y, Z, then you're kind of in a position where you're going it's almost like you says like, yeah, well, I curse you to continue the behaviours that you're still doing. Yeah, now look at you, you're all savage. And I was like, they've not changed in any way. <laughs> it's it's just someone my who's curse a really pathetic person who's like, yeah, well, I cursed him. Yeah, I cursed him. Good. Now they'll have to do X, Y, Z. So they'll just continue doing the exact same thing that they were doing before that you were telling them not to do. Mm. Yeah, but that's a bad thing for them. They're cursed to do it now. Yeah, so transformational magic as a punishment does have a place in Celtic tradition as well Uh, but again that's a huge topic to get into which we won't get sidetracked by today yeah absolutely a little bit too big but perhaps something for another week point in time so uh, I mean what are your thoughts about this as a cryptid um I don't I'm I'm not going to say that people haven't seen alien big dogs or even wolves or what have you Mm. um Nobody's actually said, well, we've actually seen men transforming into wolves, which is good, so I don't have to tackle that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a whole big batch on werewolf lore, which I think we kind of covered in a previous er- 
you know episode anyway mm-hmm. um about what could be behind it scientifically or psychologically or whatever um but yeah uh, it may be with, with seeing things like a big black dog with glowing red eyes that taps into sort of like the whole body of black dog or black wolf mythology which mm. are more sort of paranormal encounters and ghost stories so. yeah uh, yeah i tend to agree um i don't really think of well i i say i don't really think of, of sort of werewolves as kind of cryptids if that makes sense but yeah. i do think that there is you know there is the possibility of there actually being some kind of you know big dog um that's loose and temporary um or of of there being you know kind of all sorts of potentially strange bits and bobs um whether that is a person who's transforming into a werewolf or or into a wolf or not um is a whole other subject yeah definitely um and i think the possibility of there being practices where people smeared themselves with flying ointment and wolf skin and had a bit of a an out-of-body experience is entirely possible. Um, we're well known for doing that sort of thing over the centuries. Yeah, uh, whether or not we could say that a, a werewolf is a cryptid, you know, I, I wouldn't really sort of say that, but I, I think you're right that there is always the possibility of there being some kind of large dog or, or, or something running around Tipperary. There might even potentially still be wolves. Who knows? <laughs> yes. Um, it's not hugely likely, but it's possible. Always so. possible. Yeah. It's possible. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the Kellis cat. Yes. Um, this, I mean, I'm spoiler alert, guys. This is an actual genuine cryptid. Yeah. Um, I thought I should have thrown in at least one genuine cryptid. Um, <laughs> basically, this is a large, small cat, i.e. it's from the Felis, not the Panthera genus. Right. So for Felis, it's kind of like everything smaller than a cheetah mm-hmm. is Felis. That's a small cat. And everything larger than a cheetah is a panthera. So lions, tigers, bears, not bears, obviously. Lions, t- <laughs> lions tigers. Um, lions, and, tigers uh, and leopards. bears. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Yes. So anything larger is a panthera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has bristly black fur and a white patch on its chest and is typically two to three feet long with a 12 inch tail and weighing up to 15 pounds. So it's about the size of a decent sized Maine Coon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they have long legs and they walk with a graceful loping gait. So the Kellis cat um, have obviously a very long association with the Scottish fairy cat, uh, the Cotsey. Um, but after a lot of trial and error, um, it was found to actually exist um the 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 Kellis cat not the Kotsi <laughs> no word on the Kotsi yet no no one on the Kotsi yes. yet um or or the or the Kotsi um if you're in Ireland or whatever but yes yeah, so but the Kellis cat has actually found to found to actually exist um now unlike the Scottish wild cat uh Kellis cats actually hunt in pairs uh usually a male and female pair yes um, um there's going to be a lot of shooting now i'm afraid guys but that's how they found them yeah um in january 1983 a pair of Kellis cats were spotted beside the river lossy the male of the pair was shot and sent to a taxidermist it now resides in the elgin museum and is known as specimen k oh. 
I'm very sad that they shot the cat, but I know um, they proved it exists. Yeah. Uh, so in April and October of 1985, uh, two more male Kellis cats were shot near AV and Kellis, respectively. Um, blood samples were taken of the second cat and were sent to Aberdeen University Laboratories for analysis. Um, the samples proved useless upon arrival due to either being delayed or contaminated. Yeah. Now the writer in me wants to say they were contaminated because they were really cotsy, um, but obviously that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> in 1986, a pair of Kellis cats, one male and one female, were shot at Darnaway Estates, Morrisha. In the spring of 1986, traps were set near Kellis by BBC film crew for the television show Tomorrow's World, episode title On the Trail of the Big Cat. Well, I mean, it's not really that big a cat, to yeah. be fair. Um, <laughs> they were successful in catching a live specimen. The female cat was sent to Highland Wildlife Park at King Craig. Blood samples were taken for chromosomal analysis. So then um, on the 28th of February in 1988, a male cat was caught alive in Redcastle in northern Scotland. Uh, this cat was also sent to Highland uh, Wildlife Park. Yeah, and in 2001, Kellis-type cats were sighted on numerous occasions in several farms in the area of Fife. Um, and then a year later, in October of 2002, Achilles cat was killed in the lowland areas of Aberdeenshire. Uh, made into taxidermy, this specimen is housed um, in the foyer of the Aberdeen University's zoology, uh, zoology department building. Yeah. So, um, in conclusion, you don't actually need our opinion on whether this animal actually exists. It's well documented, its DNA has been sequenced, proving that it is in fact a hybrid of the domestic cat and the Scottish wild cat. Um, continual interbreeding has led to a new subspecies with distinctive genetic, um, sort of like coarse black fur and long legs. Uh, but the question is, could the Kellis cat have actually given rise to the folklore cousin of uh, the Kotsi or the Katshi? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible because I've seen a lot, certainly in Scottish mythology, I've seen a lot of the, the Cotsey described as being large black cats with white splashes of fur on their chests mm -hmm. that sort of look at you in this almost a human way, yeah. um, which sounds very like the Kellis cat. So theoretically, it's possible. I mean, we've had domestic, I say domestic cats, but cats never really domesticated. Yeah, We've had domestic cats over here for thousands of years and it's not they obviously are compatible breeding wise mm. with the scottish wild cats so we could have had kellis cats for ages and then the kellis cats could have there could have been enough of them that they are breeding within each other all together and still breeding with domestic cats and scottish wild cats and stuff as well so yeah um it's less likely with the scottish wild cat now though because that is incredibly endangered Yes. I mean, it's the really interesting thing is that, you know, we we think of cats as just being, you know, particularly small cats, just as kind of all being the same um, and don't really consider behavior and things along those lines, um, which is, you know, for example, if you look at the, the Scottish wild cat is a very solitary creature. Yeah. Um, Whereas the the domestic cats that we have, the breeds of domestic cats that we have, um, are actually come from. Uh, it's they do come from the African continent, don't they? Yeah, they're part of this small um, African hunting cat yeah. type genus. Yeah. Um, 
and so you know there is there's difference in social behaviors there's difference in lots and lots of kind of different elements um so when you combine that with you know with two sort of these two separate kind of things you will end up getting this kind of creature which feels a little bit uncanny familiar but uncanny uh you know it un, you know it looks strange it doesn't look like a a kind of a regular sort of house cat a domestic cat that that you are familiar with um but when it looks at you it, the way it kind of looks at you is with this sort of this understanding with this kind of almost human intelligence um that you might expect from you know that we do kind of get from domestic cats and that domestic cats can sort of really look at you and there is this kind of this interaction going on see what you have is this kind of this wild creature but it looks at you like it knows you you know um and so i'm not surprised that people would look at that and go that's a fairy that's a fairy right there (laughs) yeah definitely um, you end up with this creature that kind of walks in both worlds, don't you? As in, yeah. it it's comfortable around humans to the extent of it kind of knows where stuff is. Mm-hmm. Um, and people might be persuaded to take it for a normal cat until they got really close to it. So Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it, it potentially could have given rise to that sort of, or certainly embellished on an existent folk custom already. Yeah, I agree. And obviously we have talked about you know, big cats and stuff like that, which I think have kind of also fed the concept as well. Definitely. You know, in lots of different ways. Um, It's very interesting when you think about folklore, not as a static thing, but as something which is continuously being kind of fed and informed um, yeah. across time. So. Definitely. Okay, well, the next one is odd. Um, so <laughs> let's get into the Bat Beast of Kent. Kent is a great place if you want to find some odd, odd kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so this go. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise. This goes back to the nineteen sixties um, when <laughs> when UFO mania really started hitting. But in nineteen sixty three, four British teens saw a UFO land on a nearby forest. And what would haunt them for the rest of their lives was the bizarre bat-like beast that apparently came out of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. Let, let's do the whole story. Okay, so on the chilly autumn evening of November the 16th, 1963, mm-hmm. 17-year-old John Flaxton, 18-year-old Mervyn Hutchinson, and two other youthful friends were walking home from a party on Sandling Road in the county of Kent, a region apparently rife with cryptozoological and paranormal activity. Definitely. What they saw was a silent, glowing, orb-like object descending from the heavens. Um, This really odd, ovoid object, which was described as being a few metres in diameter, hovered above a field. It eventually made its way behind the trees, settled into the shadows um, of the foliage of the woods at Sandling Park. So while the teenagers were still reeling from their astonishing sighting, um, something even more inconceivable would soon grab their attention. Because moments after this extraordinary craft apparently landed behind the trees, the teens noticed a shaking in the brush, and what emerged was one of the most unique vermins ever to be chronicled in ufology. Um, four horrified eyewitnesses would later explain that an erratic, shambling, quasi-humanoid figure, 
emerged from the woods and waddled towards them. The beast apparently looked like a headless bat that was approximately five feet tall with large webbed feet and wings protruding from its back. In Hutchinson's own words, it didn't seem to have any head. There were huge wings on its back, like bat wings. So the group of friends, understandably, were a little bit overwhelmed um, with terror and adrenaline, um, and they ran away from the freakish bat thing and made their way to the nearest police station. So once there, they related their tale to what to what one must assume were very sceptical police officers. Um, Flaxton would later state that he had felt cold all over during the episode. That's actually quite a common thing. I don't mm. know how many other people have noticed this, but when you experience adrenaline dump, yeah. it generally does feel like something cold has washed right through your veins. Yeah. So that extreme hyper alertness that goes with it, it can make you feel cold. And obviously cold is a product of shock as well. So they obviously saw something that freaked them out. Yeah, something that really, really did upset them in some form yeah. or another. So, I mean, I have to say, if people had come and said, look, this bit of headless battling came out of a UFO, I would want to know where the mushrooms were, because that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, um, though there is something to be said about it, in that you've kind of got to say, it, it it's almost too bizarre to be kind of a prank. Because, like, yeah. how would you even come up with <laughs> You'd come up with something a bit more believable, wouldn't you? Yeah. In theory. So, anyway, um, less than a week later, the 21st of November, a young man named Keith Croucher confirmed the teen's claim of an unusual object soaring over Kent when he announced that he too had seen an oddly shaped craft hovering over the local soccer field, not far from where Flaxton and his friends um, had seen their, or rather had their curious encounter with its bizarre occupants. Yeah. So um, on November the 23rd, um, John McGoldrick um, decided that the reports coming from Sandling Park were simply too outrageous to be ignored um i love that he went no no this is too much i've got to go and see for myself so um after soliciting the help of an unnamed yet clearly intrepid friend um mcgoldrick and his cohort made their way to the site of all the unusual goings on uh, hoping perchance to have a face-to-face encounter with a strange alien creature it is my favorite human thing in that you know when we watch horror movies and you know there's a sound and the person goes towards it and we're like what are you doing run run but the reality is that people don't run when that kind of st- stuff happens we really do go what was that <laughs> and go towards it yeah it's nuts it really is yep <laughs> Once inside the wooded area, McGoldrick claimed that he and his companion discovered no less than three footprints, each of them 24 inches long and nine inches across. That's a big foot. That's a very, very big foot, but not a big foot. Not a big foot. Not a wood (laughs) woos. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He stated they had stumbled across an area where the foliage bracken had been flattened, as if by some tremendous weight. Uh, McGoldrick's claims caught the ear of the local press, who were no doubt eager to feed the public's ever-growing appetite for new information regarding the strange phenomenon. So you remember how we talked about the mowing devil and the sensationalist pamphlets of the 16th century? Yep. 17th century. This feels a bit like that. Yeah, it really, (laughs) really does. (laughs) Um, So... uh... Uh, The reporters didn't find anything, by the way. Uh, but that did not stop them sort of feeding the the frenzy, as it were. Uh, yeah. Presumably because it was selling episodes of their, their newspaper. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> sorry, just the whole thing makes it so funny. Um, you know, so, oh yeah, because the reporters, they did follow him back, um, as Jill says, they didn't find anything. Um, it was stated, however, that um, while they were there, the thickets were still bathed in an eerie glow, uh, which continued for some days before subsiding. Um, so they didn't find any evidence, but they did find glowing um, foliage. <laughs> Showing leaves. Yeah. Yes. Um, the case was reported in scads of newspapers as well as in the 1971 issue of Flying Saucer Review under the title The Saltwood Mystery due to its proximity to the area. Yeah. In the 1970s, ufologist Chris Wolf also reopened the case of this strange anomaly. According to records, he interviewed Flaxton and also inspected the scene of the unearthly encounter. Mm. Following his investigation, Wolf came to the dubious conclusion that what Flaxton, Hutchinson and their chums actually saw was an ordinary crow, oddly illuminated by the flashing of electric train, passing not too far away in the chilled autumnal air. I mean, yeah, okay, very cold air can sort of expand light a little bit, mm. but this seems like a bit of a stretch as an explanation. Um, he didn't ex attempt to explain how a crow managed to appear to be nearly five feet in height, <laughs> wet foot or headless. Um, other sceptics have even more dubiously suggested that the quartet saw nothing more than a scarecrow. Um, you know, I'm still leaning towards magic mushrooms. I'm yeah. sorry, but I am. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is the end, uh, or the apparent end, of the saga of the Bat Beast of Kent. Um, but it has been pointed out by numerous investigators that, as unusual as this creature's description was, it does bear an uncanny resemblance to its British crypto cousin and Cornwall's most famous monster, the Owlman. Um, <laughs> the headless, bat-like description also begs comparison to a bizarre yet eerily common breed of cryptid that includes West Virginia's Mothman, Germany's Freiburg Schrieker, China's Man Dragon, and the former Soviet Union's Blackbird of Chernobyl, um, just to name a few. Yes. Um, so what do we think? Uh, cross uh, okay, uh, one thing that I do think is interesting is that this is one of the few cryptid cases where there is a clear crossover with ufology. Yeah. Now, whether you believe UFO UFOs by the way are just unidentified flying objects they could be anything they could be a plane that's being trialed by the military that you know nothing about yeah. and for some reason it looks very odd I personally have seen UFOs on about four occasions that just means I've seen something flying and I don't know what it is yeah it, it means unidentified flying object it doesn't mean alien necessarily um, yes, and but... also remember alien just means from outside like <laughs> yeah now, even if you're someone who thinks maybe there are visitors from other planets or time travellers or whatever else you want it to be, mm -hmm. um, I do think it is interesting that we've got this sort of supposedly cryptid encounter with a crossover with something that is a bit more sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, what nobody has suggested is, oh, cryptid encounter and it's fairies, which is what people would have come down on sort of 200 years before. And it's what I come down on today. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Look, I, I think maybe it's a bit uncharitable for me to say, look, a, four teenagers were experimenting with mushrooms and um, they saw something. They, you can, when you have groups of people together taking mushrooms, 
you can get this sort of low grade connection where you all start seeing something very similar as in the suggestion passes from one person to the other yeah and also the other thing is that what can very easily happen and it's not even about just sort of saying oh well i'm agreeing with him because he's already said it is that you can if someone starts screaming or you all see something a little bit weird and then one person starts describing it if your mind is under the influence um, or has been altered in some way chemically um you can actually start to kind of your it will actually feel like a memory but it's an implanted memory um and sort of false memory implanted memories is a documented thing we do know that you sort of it can happen one you can convince yourself that something did happen and it really does feel like a memory so if even if let's say they weren't doing drugs even if in that moment it was just a moment of hysteria because they did see something which freaked them out it's very possible that they could have in full innocence and without actually meaning to um reported on something which they didn't all actually see um bearing in mind you might also have a situation where one of them didn't see that but all of the others are gabbling about it so they just kind of fall in with it you know yeah Absolutely. Um, The other thing to think about is, yes, they were in woods, but they were also clearly near a a train track. Otherwise, they wouldn't be, someone wouldn't be trying to explain an electric train as as a reason that they might have seen something strange. Yeah. Um, So they weren't like out in the wilds of civilization. For all we know, there was a gas leak or something. Mm hmm. um, Which, you know, didn't kill them because they were out in the fresh air, but it was enough, you know. If you inhale enough gas, it will make you see some pretty weird shit. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there could have been spores from plants and things, which, can, you know, it would be a rare plant, but it's not impossible that they inhaled something. It was spreading its spores into the chilly autumn air and they inhaled them and, you know, Bob's your uncle kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. And there are other kind of weirder sort of potential explanations for what it could be. I mean, for one thing... It could have actually been a species of bat that, you know, it doesn't actually belong where it where it was sort of found out. How it came to be there. I mean, we could have some wild speculation of, of it actually being transported over in a plane and falling out of a plane or something like that in a container. Or, you know, we can have all sorts of weird sort of increasingly far-fetched sort of explanations but the fact of the matter is is that it could have also just been first of all it could have been a deformed animal like animals can also be born with deformities or things like that can appear strange so it could have actually been a just a, a regular animal that looked a little bit odd um or it could have been an animal which isn't usual to kind of the local area and if you do have an animal which isn't particularly usual to the local area um, and then there is sort of light from train tracks coming through and you've all been freaked out because you just saw something very strange kind of streaking across the sky, you know, it, it would be very easy to see that and go, what the hell is that, you know? Yeah, and let's remember in the 60s and 70s, uh, subsonic planes like Blackbird were actually being tested. Yeah. And they, you know, they reach incredible speeds and it's not impossible that you know, the whole point is that they're, they're not detectable by radar. Um, yeah. But it's not impossible that early prototypes might have given off energy in the form of light, so you'd end up with this big streaking blur kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen the the um, the oval sort of streak type um, UFO myself as a teenager. 
Yeah. But again, I'm I'm taking it as that's something that I can't identify. Not that's aliens. Yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, you could you know you could say it might have actually just been like not a paraglide. I mean, there isn't there aren't really that. Well, there are obviously cliffs around Kent, but uh, you know it could have actually just been a, a human being who was sort of doing some kind of you know like paragliding or something along those lines or testing new equipment. Um, who fell from the sky and was then stumbling out because, yes. <laughs> you know, it, we is it likely? We don't know. But, I mean, I can certainly say that I think they did see something. They saw something that they couldn't explain. They had some kind of experience, whether that was because of, um, you know, they were on drugs or something else. We can't say. Who's to say? But I, I do feel like it would be a very, very strange kind of prank to pull yeah. um, with very strange details. Um, yeah, definitely. And this is, you know, when I say, mm, it sounds like a mushroom trip to me, that's not me saying, being derogatory to people who want to do things like that. I, I'm absolutely neutral on what people decide to do, making in informed choices with their own bodies and minds, yes. etc. You know, so I'm not being dismissive. I'm just like, it sounds like there's some sort of mind-altering substance going on. Yes. Um, yeah, but I think from the description, the fact that there's not a long history of headless bat people in Kent that we know of, and that, um, you know, there, we, there doesn't seem to be like a folkloric equivalent, because a folkloric equivalent is a big kind of red flag as to actually there might be a genuine animal here. Yeah. Um, I think we can say it's probably not an actual cryptid, but they may have seen an actual UFO and, you know, everything else sort of came as a product of that. But it is an unusual one. Okay, so the next one is the White Heart. Um, so, first of all, uh, heart means a deer, a stag. Um, so, white deer are rare, but they're not actually that uncommon. Um, there is a park full of gleaming white deer, including male herds of white stags um, in Kingstag, just down the road uh, from where Jules actually grew up in Dorset. And there was, until recently, I believe, actually, I don't know if he's he's gone now or he's died, um, but there was and has been sighted several times a white stag around where I live, I used to live, um, yeah. in Sussex. So, you know, it is a phenomenon which is known... Um, realistically uh albinism in deer is not a very good sign particularly if you see lots of albino deer because it it tends to be a sign of massive interbreeding yeah um i mean to be fair a lot of people take piebald deer for white deer in the sense yeah. of a true albino deer has pink hooves and a pink nose and pink eyes and that is actually yeah. quite rare because they don't tend to survive very long to keep breeding etc um yeah. but piebald deer is like the, most of the coat is white but they might have black hooves black noses dark eyes and yeah. the occasional darker patch on their fur somewhere but they look from a distance like they're just pure white yeah yeah um so i know f for a fact that in the case of the, the what parts of the large sussex herd there there was a huge problem with albinism among them which is now being improved because for some reason there was an albino stag that had been was going and was clearly having a lot of success <laughs> uh, but yeah for the most part um you know there is there is a bit of a difference uh, now sightings of white deer especially a stag on its own and in a place you would not expect to encounter one um taps into one of those 
pre-Celtic race memories uh, for the Brits and for the Irish. Absolutely. Uh, a white stag is an indication that the other world is near in traditional um, mm-hmm. Celtic and pre-Celtic uh, mythology. And I think that's something that still feels important now on a really subconscious level. I mean, we were talking before this episode about Narnia books very briefly, but the whole thing with the yeah. children hunting the white stag gives you wishes and sets you quests at the end mm-hmm. of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There's a weird, strange sort of magical recognition when people read that paragraph. Yeah. And I think it taps Absolutely. into this. Yeah, and it is a strange, and it is particularly also the use of the word heart rather than stag. I mean, you have the white stag or the white heart, um, but it is, it, it seems to also have a kind of universality in that you will find examples of it across, you know, different cultures. Um, and particularly the idea of something being pure white um, being an indication of it belonging to or being related to the other world um, is quite interesting I think. Yeah many Celtic tribes would not kill pure white animals because they were considered to have been marked by the gods and you offended the gods at your peril. Um, Yes. And a white stag or a white heart appearing generally was there as a warning that you were transgressing on a taboo or that you were about to have your life completely turned upside down being sent on a quest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah um we do see examples of this in fiction as well um obviously we had it in narnia uh you have the white animals in spinning silver obviously which is kind of more based on sort of uh slavic sort of russian kind of mythology but again we're very kind of centered in those ideas of the white animals being in some way related to kind of the other world. Um, This also links to the idea of white actually being a colour of mourning um, and, you know, uh, the links of death, the other world, etc. all kind of coming in there um, and the uniqueness, obviously, of it. Um, Now, in Arthurian legend, uh, a white stag appeared frequently in the forests around Camelot, offering quests to the knights of the round table i love that because it is like it's like if you're playing a video game you gotta go find the go find the white heart they'll go give you some quests yeah yeah basically (laughs) it's the whole sort of cunning you know a clever animal type thing acting as a guide isn't it yeah Um, in the story of thomas the rhymer who was actually a historical person uh sir thomas de ursuldoon he was fetched away to fairy again. This is after he'd returned the first time. He hasn't spent seven years in fairy. Um, yep. He's also known as True Thomas because he couldn't lie. I think that was a gift from the fairy queen, which he didn't care for greatly. But anyway, he yeah, came... and caused him a great deal of difficulty. It did. Anyway, he came back from fairy the first time, and we've got records of this person sort of reappearing seven years later, settling down. And he came back with a gift for prophecy. He used his gift for prophecy to influence Scottish versus English politics. Um, This is fairly well documented. People weren't sure whether it was just he was a very shrewd political player or he genuinely could see the future kind of thing. Um, it, It makes for really interesting reading, particularly if you're a writer and you're looking for inspiration. But anyway, Mm -hmm. he was accused of being profligate with his gift of prophecy and he was midway through talking someone through a strategy 
when he looked out of the tavern window and saw a white heart and a white doe walking down the street. Um, it was such a strange sight that people did not go anywhere near the animals. They felt the touch of the uncanny. Yeah. And Sir Thomas de Erseldoon didn't say anything. He got up from his table, he went out of the tavern, and then he followed the, the stag and the doe into the forest and was never seen again. <laughs> that is... It's so strange, but also, like, very wondrous. <laughs> um, so, yeah, all this is very much folklore. Um, but I'm just going to mm -hmm. talk about the Merseyside white stag from last year. Okay. And I just want to see what people's general reactions are. Um, now, basically, there was a white stag running free up and down the streets um, in sort of Bootle in Merseyside in Liverpool uh, mm -hmm. last year. And it, it did it. It was for several hours. It was just the most. I mean, you can probably find the footage on YouTube and there's definitely pictures that were taken. And it mm -hmm. is just this white stag running up and down the roads, looking completely out of place in this really built up part of Liverpool. No one's got any clue yeah. how it got there. In the end, the police shot it dead. Why? They, um, the, the reason given was the fact that it was a danger to both traffic and the public. And yeah, a, a panicking deer, a panicking stag is quite a dangerous thing. Yes. The RSPCA's um, advice was to leave it alone because while stags and does and things will get themselves in places they shouldn't, for example, my back garden had a deer in it. <laughs> Frightened the life out of me. I was not expecting a huge animal to come crashing out of the bushes at me. Um, they will find their way out again and they will generally find their way back. They tend to do things like they follow canals into towns and they follow tram lines into towns and then eventually they'll sort of get themselves unstuck and go back again. The police felt yeah. it was too much of a risk for this animal to be running around, so they shot it. They could have shot it with a tranquilizer. Um, yeah. They could have cleared the streets, said, everybody go inside, this animal is potentially dangerous, we're going to tranquilize it. Obviously what happens when you shoot a deer with a tranquilizer gun is the deer quite often takes off in its burst mm -hmm. of flight speed and then it will fall a bit later on as the tranquilizer works sort of in sort of 30 seconds or so. So for yeah, for those 30 seconds to two minutes, potentially it could have been dangerous, but I don't see why they couldn't have sort of corralled it a little bit, shot it with a tranquilizer yeah. and then had it removed. I don't think they needed to shoot it dead. Someone pointed out recently, and I'm not saying I absolutely agree with this, but I thought it was a really interesting talking point. A white stag was shot dead in Merseyside in Liverpool this time last year, or just slightly before this time last year. Mm -hmm. Since then, <laughs> we have seen the death of the Queen, the absolute, you know, the, the Tory party is completely going downhill. We've seen various <laughs> other problems and our economy is in the toilet. And this guy was like, I'm not saying it's because they shot this white stag. I'm just saying that actions have consequences. I'm <laughs> not saying it's because you shot the stag, but I'm just saying I don't think it helped. <laughs> what I find interesting is that even if that was meant as a joke, the fact is mm. the people had this knee-jerk reaction to that stag being shot dead. So it's mm. a piece of magic, even if it is just a white animal wandering into this completely urban area yeah and then it's it's shot dead and it i did have a sort of like oh god reaction like that was the wrong thing to do a very sort of gut feeling that that was the wrong thing to do i don't know how you felt about that <laughs> yeah absolutely um and you're right in that i mean 
on the one on the one side, you know, just us being kind of you know empathetic people, we go, oh god, what a waste, you know, just to kill this animal for no other reason than the fact that it's it was inconvenient. Kind of, it was inconvenient, yeah, and uh, you know, also the the very sad fact of the life is that you know. It, it it was there for a long time and we've kind of built up around where it, it you know, would have once roamed probably without that much difficulty. Um, you know, okay, so it wandered in and it was just shot. Um, so yes, that is going to hit. But you're absolutely right that there is this very strange kind of gut reaction of, oh no, that was... That's a bad thing to do. You have called down on something there that you should not, you know... There's going yeah. to be consequences to that, um, and it's not a logical thing, but it it does feel like it's a you know it's a bad sign, it's an omen, um, and I guess there's kind of two sides to that because on the one side you can basically say, well, it feels it's not actually about it being an omen, but rather it being a sign of the times, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, it is still there even for those i think who are not aware of kind of the mythology behind it i think even they would sort of feel it to a certain degree yeah i think so and that certainly seemed to be the case when you know it was up on twitter or social media and what have you so yeah yeah the conclusion it's not really a cryptid it is a, a real animal and a folkloric motif with very strong emotional connotations yes I mean, I can't speak for white stags that actually come up to you and offer you to take you on a quest. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I can say, because around there, there's a, a, a large sort of forested area. There's a lot of forest roads around Sussex, uh, where um, sort of I live. And there there was this whole kind of thing of a lot of people who, who'd been in near crashes because they were just driving at night and their headlights would just pick up this humongous white stag that would just step into the road <laughs> scare the living bejesus out of everybody because they're really big they are really big it's really i just i it's never going to cease to interest me the fact that yes deer walks into the road and we're kind of like ah okay stop let's stop in time and not write the car off obviously a white deer walks into the road and it's like, oh my god, I must stop, I cannot hit the creature of the other world. Even if you're not consciously thinking that, that's where you're yeah. going. <laughs> yeah, what is it? People are like, I thought it was a ghost. You know, because it, yeah. it really does look not of this earth. It's yeah. just stunningly, you know, different. It must it's not just, offend yeah. the gods. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the Angel of the Thames. I really have gone for the really odd ones this time. I'm sorry. Yeah, and you know, honestly, um, I am I'm so here for it because it's actually really nice to kind of talk about sort of much more vague ones. Um, so this is a humanoid creature with large feathered wings, which is probably hence where the uh, the angel kind of motif came from. Yeah. Um, stories began after the Great Fire of London, which was 2nd of September 1666. The fire spread quickly from Thomas Fariner's bake shop on Pudding Lane at about 1am. The family servant awoke to find the building aflame. Unable to control the flames, the family escaped to safety, but the terrified servant sadly perished in the blaze. Um, if you don't know an awful lot about the history of London, this is not that long after the Great Plague, not to be confused with the Black Death. Um, yeah. 
and the way London was built was so crammed together that the fire just spread. It spread really, really quickly and wiped out whole sections of the city. As in, there's parts yeah. of London that we just don't have anymore, thanks to this big blaze. So the whole thing, like mm. the nursery rhyme, London's burning, fetch the engines, etc. This is all to do with the Great Fire of London. It, it's one of those moments in history that kind of left psychic scars on people. Yeah, um, and it really was... I mean, there's a reason why, yeah, we still do kind of sing nursery rhymes about it, because the impact of it was so humongous. Yeah. Um, so, and, and obviously in those kinds of situations um, where a lot of people are going through something horrific, something scary, uh, there are often sightings of very, very strange things. Yes. Now, King Charles um, II allegedly tried to help put out the inferno by helping carrying fire buckets. And that's the thing. They did have very basic fire engines in the terms of barrels on trucks pulled by horses. Horses who would have been yeah. nigh on hysterical by that point. Yeah. And it was chains of buckets, people pulling water from the Thames. Um, yeah. Six people lost their lives and they were buried in what is now known as Jubilee Gardens and the king attended the funerals of the victims. The fire coils caused widespread devastation of the city, as we mentioned, but among yeah. the charred remains, people rebuilding London claimed to have seen a vaporous winged-looking anomaly floating above the River Thames and in the ruins of the surrounding areas. Now, these are the first recorded sightings of what would later be branded as the Thames Angel. Uh, though it doesn't rule out the possibility that the angel had appeared to people much earlier than the Great Fire of London. Yeah. Um, so there are about six recorded sightings during the time. Um, how many more is unknown. Uh, even the, the most famous diarist, Samuel um, Pepys. Is it Pepys? Is that how you it, It's Samuel it? Pepys. Peeps. That makes much more sense than I was going to say. <laughs> Pepys sounds cooler. Uh, but Samuel Peeps um, believed he had seen the heavenly spectre and explained it as what could only be described as an angel. Yeah, see, that's interesting, the fact Samuel Peeps said that, because if you've ever read any of his writings, it's kind of like, he was quite a cynic about a lot of things, and he was about yeah. politics, and he was about strategy, and he was very critical of life in general. So if he thought he saw the Thames Angel, it makes me think there must have been something to see, even if it wasn't an actual angel. Yeah, because he, he, he is quite a grounded individual. And of course, you do have to consider that whenever there is any kind of great tragedy, people will kind of connect with ideas of faith, ideas of things like that. Yeah. And, and the fact that people went immediately to it being an angel... I think says a lot in that even the most grounded person after seeing this level of devastation and, and horror might kind of choose to interpret something as angelic as a kind of as a form of of finding hope reason um and you know comfort during dark times yeah i mean it seems to have been that the apparition sort of provided an overall positive feeling with the londoners and was accepted yeah. as a good omen um, inspiring hope to carry on from the tragedy. I think that's quite typical of the human mindset. I mean, people are very cynical when they talk about us as a species and they say that, you know, we're all out for ourselves. If there's a zombie apocalypse, we'll all start killing each other. It will be tin pot dictatorships mm -hmm. and small tribes. But actually, the evidence that we've got shows that what happens is there's a great tragedy and we all try to pull together because what we want as a species more than anything else is all to feel like we belong together. So we yeah. will do anything to try and preserve that. 
Um, so I'm not surprised. I mean, they could have seen like the angel of death literally hovering there with a scythe and they would have gone, it's a great omen because they needed one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and and sort of coming together in that way and that, that, that feeling of hope and stuff like that as well. Again, it's not that uncommon that after great tragedies, initially people are actually quite jolly. Uh, because first of all, they've got that rush of adrenaline which says, I'm alive. And and the, the mass, of the hugeness of that kind of energy as well also will, will kind of result sometimes in hysterics and sadness. But there's a big relief in kind of having a big cry or a big scream or something like that. And then a kind of a hopefulness. The kind of the depressed emptiness tends to come later on. So i feel it very believable that collectively people would say i have this strange feeling of hope which i shouldn't have after this amazing you know tragedy yeah um yeah definitely. so yeah it's very interesting um I, th I think it's really interesting and tapping into what you've just said that those who mm. claim to have encountered the angel felt a deep serene sense of reassurance um possibly because that's how they would have interpreted what they saw um and mm. a feeling of comfort that lasted for some time afterwards and I think it's yeah. just really, I mean, it, yeah, it's this, this awful tragedy. But at the same time, even considering the population of London, only six people lost their lives, which is terrible, yeah. but only six people, not 60,000. It didn't yeah, burn. Which is, again, considering the absolute devastation of it, yeah. that, it's incredible. What people um, are not, yeah, well, I think what some historians aren't really taking on board is the fact everyone must have been pulling together to get people out for only six people in all of London to die during that terrible, terrible fire. Um, yeah, and it has to be I'm, said, that that fire saw off the Great Plague. It got rid of the end of it because it killed off an awful lot of rats which were actually spreading the plague. Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, a lot of people, as we said, there was kind of this sort of religious sort of element to it in that it, it reinforced the theory that the angel was, in fact, the angel of promise, uh, mirroring uh, the rainbow of promise that appeared to Noah in the Old Testament um, uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, but, uh, so this kind of idea of this will never happen again. Um, and again, it's weird in that it kind of sees off the end of the plague and there's almost this kind of, I've done this to kind of clear the area, but yeah. this will never happen again <laughs> kind of concept. Yeah, I mean, I, I will, I think it's worth mentioning here that when something supernatural happened, whether it was something supernatural for good or evil, or good or ill even, mm. um, people were disposed to see that as proof of the divine. So even yeah. if it was something bad and it proved the devil existed, well, if the devil exists, God must exist too. And that, I think that yeah. that was very deeply entrenched in people's mindsets. But this wasn't the only time the Angel of the Thames was seen. So moving on to 1865, builders who were constructing the Victoria Embankment claimed mm -hmm. they witnessed the Angel's presence on several occasions. Um that that's very interesting yes as well though that it's the embankment <laughs> well i mean it's a time of change in yeah as again so maybe not as traumatic but if you think of the things that were going on in 1865 like it was you know the age of enlightenment there was the great exhibition there was um you know the, the push towards things like photography um, yeah, and a lot of uh, tuberculosis. And a lot of tuberculosis as well, as you said. Um, but there was a lot of... It, again, it was changed. There's, the railways were being developed. 
So mm-hmm. the world was changing. It's not surprising that you might see something like that again. And then that takes us yeah. on to the two world wars where the angel was cited on many occasions during both world wars. Um, people took that as signification of divine support in times of peril. Again, people needed to believe in something. Yeah. Absolutely. Um <laughs> You know, others believe that the angel only appears to very blessed people, um, that those alone have the required divine and spiritual qualities to have the angel manifest in front of them. Um, So it was just about the reason we don't all see it is that it only appears to people who are worthy of of seeing it. I mean, that's on one hand, that's a kind of a bit of a cop out, but it's also there's a nastiness to that. Mm-hmm. as well rather than oh i was just in the right place at the right time it's i was special enough for god to choose me to show me this thing yeah which means i'm and better i'm better than you yeah <laughs> um anyway modern sightings are not unusual in 2006 there were four independent accounts of people having claimed to witness the angel of the thames in the area of the london eye on the south bank um that again it's also kind of very interesting um just modern people um and that it it isn't just sort of an old kind of right well that's the last we've ever heard of it but it that it continues to this day yeah um so i guess that that's the question it is you know is this a cryptid is it a mass hallucination what what do we think we're dealing with here um Again, what do you think we're dealing with, Jules? <laughs> I find it. I would find it difficult to put it under the category of cryptid because if we're talking of mm. a humanoid thing with wings, we're back to my problem with owl man and Mothman, etc. Whereby there is no biological reason, evolution-wise, for wings to have evolved in those sorts of, you know, in a humanoid species. Um, certainly yeah. not any reason for something to develop six limbs, for example. You know, wings are limbs as well. Um, yeah. And it just, that makes it improbable. I mean, the only reason for something to develop uh, something which would then be passed on to it, its young would be mm. increased effectiveness of breeding or to make it more attractive to mates for increased effectiveness of breeding or defence, which allows it to live long enough in order to breed. Unfortunately, when it comes down to evolution, it's always about sex. So yeah. cryptid wise, I'm having a difficult time swallowing that one. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but that being said, again, we could very much have a situation where, you know, they talk about seeing these kind of these wings. Um, it could actually have been, you know, something which had wings that didn't have. Arms. Yeah, maybe it was a stork. It, it could have been a stork. It could have been, you know, any number of kind of large sort of bird. Um which again if you've got to consider actually how the big element would have been actually the clarity of the air you know after a great fire there's going to be a a relative amount of pollution that's going to take a little while to clear particularly if there's then rebuilding and stuff like that during the victorian period a lot of vapors a lot of sort of strange things um again also one has to consider the quality of the water at the time around the thames being what the thames was being used for the kind of vapors that might have been rising from the thames as well which probably wouldn't have been helpful um 
if we mix all of these kinds of things in together, even if there had just been a regular kind of bird, the way it was silhouetted, the way it was kind of seen, um, if you have, you know, the sun hitting the back of, of a bird and then that kind of silhouette being hitting sort of clouds and or, or steam or things like that, it could appear a lot bigger, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's entirely possible that there was, you know, something in that respect or that there was a very, very large kind of bird. What always interests me is that, as you've said, there are other examples of these kinds of things like Mothman, um, like uh, the... Um, is it, it's the crow of, of Chernobyl, isn't it? Um, Chernobyl, is yeah. It crow or raven? I think yeah. it said crow. Yeah, um, it's it's just a big black bird. Um, though the big black bird was not particularly, uh, didn't seem to be an omen of goodness. <laughs> you know, um, there is this kind of, yeah, this idea of actually birds, of winged creatures being around kind of times of, appearing during times of disaster and stuff like that yeah um, um, that is something that is very baked into the human psyche though the idea that news whether it's good or bad comes on swift wings yeah absolutely um and you know the it kind of stands to reason that you would get large birds particularly scavenger birds or things like that that would sort of start to appear like i've got to point out ravens are huge yeah. Like you think you've seen like no ravens are really actually very big. Um and they will appear, you know, at, after battles when there has been, you know, times of death, when there's been destruction and they because they will take advantage of what's there for them to eat. So it also wouldn't have been particularly strange that you would see a very large bird kind of flying around that area during moments of, of terrible destruction or, or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, the other thing is I think people definitely have this tendency towards seeing what they need to see. And if you need to hope, yeah. then you're going to see something that you need to see. Um, the yeah. brain is a modelling system and it will take the input from your senses and it will create the most logical or sometimes the most necessary thing out of those out of that input um, and it will yeah. give you what it thinks will be best fit the situation that will best fit your survival it may be that what best fitted everyone's survival after the great fire or during the world wars was some sort of angelic entity yeah absolutely um and also the idea that if they were if they're if they did see something and it was you know down to kind of make basically their brain trying to make sense of everything that was happening all at once um that actually they would interpret what they'd seen based on the very mixed feelings they were already having yeah definitely um, like like saying why do i feel relieved during times of great stress or during this time of great tragedy why do i not feel you know terrible when i feel like i should feel terrible you know um so there's, it's very interesting in that respect. There's a lot that's kind of going on there. Definitely. Okay, our final one, drakes and dragons. Um, now, this is far too big a subject to go into in detail, and we have already done an episode on dragon mythology, so be sure to check that out. Yeah. Um, but I yes. just want to talk about two relatively modern Welsh varieties. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really want this this first one to be true, and for some reason it kind of rings true in my head, even though I've got no proof for it whatsoever. 
So, yeah. I mean, up until the 1920s, it was common, apparently, for small dragon-like creatures to be seen in rural areas of Wales. They were winged with long tails and no hind legs. They were iridescent mm-hmm. colours that looked like jewels in the sunlight and grew to around two or three feet in length. They also seemed to have built nests. Um, if you disturbed a nest, they would rise into the air and circle over your head. Uh, children used to play with them in the same way that children will collect bugs and things. And farmers mm-hmm. would kill them. They'd shoot them because they were worse than foxes for taking chickens. Um, that is a direct quote taken from a, a collection of folklore type accounts. Um, and you can read several of these sort of accounts in Mary Trevelyan's Folklore and Folk Stories of Wales, which was published in 1901. So, okay. I mean, I know this is a separate thing, but... Um, a small winged reptile type creature that was native to Wales. It's not mm-hmm. completely impossible. We haven't found it, but we haven't found an awful lot of animals. So <laughs> no, we're still discovering yeah. new species. Um, so I just, I guess it's not really a magical dragon. It doesn't seem to breathe fire or anything. It seems to be mostly focused on stealing your chooks. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to be sort of like open-minded and i admit that this is partly because i think it's really cute and i would like them to be real (laughs) you know honestly yeah me too um i i think you're kind of onto something in terms of sort of saying that what we understand as dragons is obviously also we have this very kind of idea we have this great idea of what a dragon is supposed to look like forgetting of course that dragons came in all sorts of weird and wonderful sizes and the word dragon could be applied to all sorts of strange things yeah. um you know so we could actually have some kind of reptile or it could have you know when they're talking about it 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 might have actually just been some kind of very large insect or you know um do we get an idea of so i mean i know they said they carried things off but it could have just been that they came in and they bit and and stuff like that and just like killed you know and and scavenged or something like that um you know there's a lot of possibilities uh, they could have also been a type of bat or bird or something along those lines you know yeah. um iridescence in feathers and things like that uh is something that we do see so uh you know there's there's a lot of possibilities there i kind of want it to be true as well not going to lie i i really do want it to be true yeah it's just the idea of them being out there and you can walk into the hills and disturb something basking on a rock and then this beautiful sort of like, but quite small, cute type of track and that's quite portable, just sort of goes up into the air and spirals over you. I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so an even more modern sighting of a different kind dates to the 1980s. A long serpentine creature left a huge, fresh, shining trail in the grass and was killing sheep. You know, you can always tell when something's gone wrong in Wales because someone's been killing someone else's sheep. <laughs> there are dead sheep involved. <laughs> Great sheep farmers. Um, animals were found with two puncture marks in the flesh and lacking in blood. The bodies were mm-hmm. otherwise undisturbed. Veterinary examination showed the sheep had been killed with venom. Uh, the killing stopped as abruptly as they began, with no one discovering the cause or catching a glimpse of the creature. So it was just this great big shining trail. Too big to be a snake apparently Mm -hmm. um but something was biting them poisoning them apparently drinking their blood and then buggering off again (laughs) yeah um which is you know definitely not something that's (laughs) 
particularly happy idea. It's a, by any stretch of the imagination. It's a bit of a puzzle because I would say, okay, well, clearly some huge serpent um, somehow ended up in Wales and was not happy about mm-hmm. this. But then it doesn't really explain because okay, you get you get snakes in sort of basically two varieties. You get the big strangly type snakes, which don't yeah. tend to be venomous because they don't need to because they're going to strangle you, and you get the smaller and for smaller you know they can be like seven feet long um mm-hmm. but they don't tend to strangle you snakes they tend to be a lot thinner and they have venom and they envenomate you by biting you or sometimes in the case of some cobras and things by spitting it in your face yeah which you don't want to happen that's not that's not a good day for you um but you don't tend to have massive massive serpents that can strangle you and bite you as well the, those are two things that you know, that's two different evolutionary tracks. That's not something that seems to happen together. The other thing is yeah. a snake, once it's killed its prey, tends to slither around it mm. um, and then sit there while it digests it. And something as big as a sheep, it would be digesting it for some time. It doesn't tend to pop in, drink all the blood and then disappear again. Yeah. That's that's the really peculiar element. So yeah, that's a, that's a bit odd. I, for some reason, they leapt on dragon, but that might just be because the dragon does live large in wealth mythology. So yeah, who knows? And it does live large in wealth Welsh mythology in terms of things like the lindworm, which did leave a shining trail behind it, although that trail was acidic or you know caustic mm-hmm. at the least. Um, and they did sort of eat sheep and destroy sheep, you know, traditionally. Although they sort of dissolved them. Yeah. Um, anyway, don't know. Don't really have a conclusion for that last one for you, except something very weird was going on. And there must be some truth in it somewhere, because they've obviously got the veterinary records of actual venom being used. I suppose at this point yeah. we suspect a human agent, but that's a really bloody weird thing to do. It is, though again, people have done very, very weird things before for all sorts of very weird reasons. Um, so again, it, it's it's prob- it's more likely to be a human than it is to have been a, an un an as yet unknown type of snake that only attacks for a very short period of time and drinks blood. Yeah, is a bloodsucker of some kind. Um, I guess one could say, okay, well, perhaps it's some kind of eel creature <laughs> that was able to wriggle out for a little bit and I don't know I feel like drink I feel like let's go to the pub let's have sheep's blood sheep's blood let's go definitely. have some sheep's blood yeah um, I, it's possible it's always possible that there was some kind of creature that was doing this um and that there was you know it was exsanguination because actually you know something else had then decided to kind of take advantage of the kind of this corpse and sucked up the blood for whatever reason or whatever sucked up the venom Um, as well sucked up the venom as well um (laughs) yeah um so yeah i i don't know i really really don't know i can't say um that i i have a strong kind of idea about this for some for some of them i really do but for this one um, but, it is very, very strange. Yeah. Um, and it's not. And I do enjoy it. Yeah. I, en- I enjoy the mystery. It's um, the fact that the urgency is gone because it happened and then it stopped. Sort of like, again, I think the most likely explanation is a human one, but the fact that it stopped yeah. sort of it takes away the we need to know, we need to figure this out element mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. 
I do love the fact people are just like, well, it's not bothering us anymore, so we're not going to pursue it. Partic- I love that you particularly get this in very sort of Celtic areas. So you get it in Wales, you get it in Ireland and, and, and in Scotland, which was like, well, aren't you curious about this? Nope, we're not messing around with that. If it's not bothering us, we're not, yeah, we mind <laughs> we're our own not business. getting anywhere yeah. near it. That is a, that is a yeah. very sort of, well, just generally British country attitude. It's like, it's not messing with us. Yep. You don't mess with him kind of thing. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, that brings us to the end of our second episode on cryptids. Do get in touch and let us know if you've enjoyed these. Um, It's something we could conceivably do more of in the future because there are many, many more cryptids in Britain and Ireland, which we have not touched on. Yes, um, we have a wealth of very strange creatures. um, And, you know, perhaps we can go across the sea and look at some other local places, other little creatures that are lesser known about. Um, But there's a lot of possibility there. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, I've got one for you guys. Um, So very recently, I watched 3,000 Years of Longing, which has Tilda Swinson and um, Idris Elba in it. And it is, I believe it's inspired by um, uh, A.S. Byatt's The Djinn in the Nightingale's Eye. Okay. So if you are familiar with uh, that uh, short story, that that novella, um, then this will very much interest you. Now it is, it reads, sorry, it watches very much like you're reading a li- literary fiction. Um, there is a lot of detail and attention giving to the beauty of a moment, the beauty of storytelling, um, imagery, sound, symbolism. It's fantastically engaging um, and very sort of beautiful kind of film. Uh, if you're going into it hoping for this like rip-roaring plot which has got lots and lots of stuff, um, you're not going to get that. What you're going to get is kind of like a series of stories um, about these two characters. And the concept is basically that you have a... Um, she's she's a writer but she's a she's a professor who studies kind of stories and while she is in istanbul she basically finds a beautiful little um like perfume bottle and inside of it is a genie or a gin and uh the gin basically says i must grant you your three wishes of your the of your heart's desire um, and he needs that in order to be free. Um, but she doesn't want to, to sort of make wishes because she knows that if she makes wishes, all of the stories have basically said that it's going to turn out wrong. Yeah. And the whole film basically, or at least the very, the, the vast majority of the film is about them kind of talking and him basically explaining and telling all the stories about how he ended up where he ended up and her talking a little bit about herself um and kind of the two of them sort of going from there it's very engaging um it's very unique and i really do recommend it um it's beautifully done and beautifully acted awesome that sounds really cool i am definitely curious about that one (laughs) i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it i mean it's me so the chance of me getting to watch it before before we've all (laughs) gone old and gray are quite slim but you know i'll try And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, 
the Speculative Fiction Podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>